until the present day. So I'll start by asking Declan, um, what's your background in terms of, of writing and have you written books in the past? Uh, I have indeed. Um, my um, career is as a journalist, so I've been writing all my life. Uh, I worked in uh, local newspapers in Ireland and uh, one in Britain and for some national newspapers there and here. Uh, but um, I did write one book before this uh, called Peter's Cave, which was about my grandfather, an Irish revolutionary. And uh, that took about four years to write. Um, briefly, it was about uh, his life as a revolutionary. Uh, he was imprisoned in 1919 with Eamon de Valera and many others uh, in Lincoln Prison. And while there, because he was a man who was uh, in hardware and a locksmith, he was able to craft a key, master key, that got de Valera and two other people out of Lincoln. And it was an enormous event at the time that got headlines all around the world. So, so it was featured in, in the film Michael Collins. That's that, right. The, the very key. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just one of these quirky aspects of Irish history. Uh, you know, that you had all these individuals working together uh, to make a key to uh, form an escape, which they did. And then later on, Peter de Lucre, my grandfather who crafted the key, and Eamon de Valera, the man who was liberated, became better enemies and in fact had a row about the key because de Valera had promised to give it back but did not for about 10 years. So the key, which was a symbol of cooperation, became a symbol of bitterness. So it was an interesting aspect of the book. It is indeed. I should say for anybody listening at the moment that we are indeed filming or recording in the pub, so if you hear anything in the background, it's, it's revelers. Uh, it's about quarter past three, so I think they're entitled to a, to a pint. Um, so, Declan, what would your relationship be with the pub? Would you have drank here over the years or have colleagues that would drink here? Yes, my, uh, my father, uh, who was a journalist and who worked in the uh, Irish Times and in the Catholic Herald in the 1950s, knew this pub very well and worked with Paddy Kavanagh. Uh, Paddy Kavanagh was the film critic of the uh, Irish Catholic. I, I always mean to look up those film reviews to see exactly what he said. I don't know whether he went to too many. Um, so essentially my father would have known this pub for a long time and then uh, when I came of age, which I can't say what age that was, uh, I started uh, drinking in here. Really because the Irish press journalists used to come in and it was a great buzz around. They got a lot of their stories in here and it would be usual for journalists to go off shift, come in here and hear a story about someone finding an uh, ancient piece of pottery or uh, someone uh, winning the lotto or whatever and rushing back in to write up the story. Uh, half sausage. Uh, and uh, so they hoovered up all these wonderfully interesting stories and there were great newspapers. So that's how I 
became attached to this uh, establishment. Right. You mentioned there that uh, you have a, a personal connection to um, the Irish Rebellion and, and the Civil War that ensued. Um, Mulligan's also has uh, some some links to uh, to the uh, to that period. Would you be able to elaborate yeah, on that? That's right. I mean, there's quite a number of important moments in Irish history squashed together, like the 1930 lockout up to mm. the War of Independence, the Treaty, etc. Uh, but essentially, with the 1930 lockout, there was a man who was uh, shot and wounded outside here. Uh, he was an innocent bystander. And he, uh, this was a row going on between uh, free labourers and others, uh, part of the dispute. Uh, he was given first aid, I can't imagine what that was, but it probably looked black and a little bit of white on the top, <laughs> rather than any, anything else. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, um, there's another interesting story I heard from Tommy Cusack, a previous owner, uh, who said his understanding was that the... Uh, grandfather clock was used to hide rifles mm. and uh, at the time of the black and tans so I actually uh, checked out whether or not the black and tans had any interest in this place mm. and they did in fact they raided it and uh, they did look around the premise but couldn't find anything and it was quite clever what they did because they put the rifles in a very obvious or not obvious but very uh, striking place the clock, which is something that as a child you're told not to go near, mm. not to touch. So the cleverness that Mulligans is renowned for extended even into military times. Although having said all that, uh, there was, I don't believe there was any direct connection between Mulligans and the Republican mm. movement. It would have been very much a sideline. During your research, would you have found that that was common practice for the Black and Tans to search pubs, or was it... Was it a blanket thing, or would they search specific specific pubs because they would uh, have certain allegiances? Yes, they would. Uh, they would, and in fact, the night they raided Mulligans, what a great title for a book that would be. Uh, <laughs> the night they raided Mulligans, there were many other pubs raided that night, and nothing was found. Okay. But uh, pubs would have been an obvious target for them because they're centres where people meet and where they can talk and discuss what plans they have and they're public. Um, so you would also have had publicans who would have been uh, in a position of authority in a community and perhaps that's why the Black and Tans focused on, on pubs mm -hmm. and hotels as well. And um, obviously this, this book was a, a few years in the making, so what kind of timeline did you have from you know, uh, deciding to, to go ahead with the book and how many people would you have interviewed uh, uh, for the oral history aspect of it? I, I must have been uh, close to 2,000 I reckon I interviewed, but a lot of the uh, memories or, shall we say, leads uh, would have come over maybe a 20 year period from mm. coming in here. And uh, <clears throat> I found it quite difficult because in a pub, no more than any other place, you will hear something, and then when you check it out, it's not true. Mm. And uh, I have a stack of papers about the height of three form books on one element of this book that doesn't appear because it wasn't true. But I had to check it out. It was actually to do with a, an anecdote which is untrue. Well, I don't know whether it's not true or not, I just can't prove it. It's mm. unlikely to be true. And it is that WBS came in here with and um, was brought in by his friend F.R. Higgins to experience a pub 
and then jo or, uh, Yates had a glass of sherry as people were fighting and there was drink spilling everywhere and, and he said, Higgins, take me out of here, I've seen enough. <laughs> um, but if you look at the internet and other sources, it's happened in toners, it's happened everywhere mm. else. And uh, the other issue was, the story is told that it was the first time Yates was in a pub and he's known to have been in a pub, you know, many, many years before that. So it's suspect. So you have maybe three months, not on this issue all day, every day, but over a period of three months you're digging into this, going into the National Library, checking this out, mm -hmm. asking people, and then you have a, a stack of papers and you leave it aside, it is no use, it cannot go. Is, is there ever a temptation when you come across a story like that that's you know quite juicy and would help sell the book to, uh, to include it, or at least include the rumour? Uh, it is. I mean, there was one I was going to put in, but again, um, I know it was said, but it's not something that was original. And the, the, you know, the point of the story was that it was an original joke or an original story. So I just left it out. But I, um, because I have a very long training in journalism, the focus has all, in my journalistic career has always been as any half decent journalist would have is, you know, to get to the facts, go to the facts and keep to the facts mm. and while you can be tempted to say it is believed that or one person said that or claimed that, you're really reducing the truth of something mm. um, and bringing in elements that if you don't know they're correct, they shouldn't be in there. Yeah. Especially um, as they relate to historical figures. Exactly. The next thing I wanted to talk about was, um, you go into, the, into good detail in the book about the various owners of, uh, of the pub, but I'd like to specifically focus on John Mulligan, who the pub is named after. Could you tell us about, a bit about his reign over the yeah, pub? Yeah, he was a, an interesting figure. I mean, essentially, he appears to be a quiet man, like many other publicans who came in and did his work. He uh, arrived in Dublin from uh, Meath, married... Um, Alicia Halpin, who was already here, and they began running running the premises in 1851 together. And um, he had uh, a lot of bad luck, it appears, uh, because you can only rely on what is in the records. Uh, but for example, he was beaten up by a coal man um, who attacked the premises for a very silly reason. Apparently, he said something about the Crampton Memorial, which is since gone that it wasn't a good thing and these Coleman uh, took exception to it. Uh, this is recorded from the Freemans Journal. It's very hard to figure out why that would be the case. But in any case, he was actually uh, punched and fell to the ground and the man who did it was brought to court and fined. And then another individual um, came in here after being in the Theatre Royal and he had a few drinks and he went home in Mulligan's and then he went home and he kicked his wife to death and he was uh, brought to court and uh, tried and uh, convicted and sentenced to uh, 20 years hard labour and the interesting issue about that particular story is that it predates the birth of Joyce James Joyce the writer by about 20 years however elements of that story are very similar to elements of a story which Joyce included in his book uh, of Dubliners, and, uh, which is a collection of short stories. And this 
uh, story uh, is very much, uh, you know, grounded from those events. However, I can't say that Joyce ever heard about it. I can't say that Joyce uh, did decide to base it on this. However, the elements are so strong, including the fact that in Joyce's story, the man also drinks at Mulligan's and goes home mm. and beats up a family member. When the original incident happened, is there any indication whether that had a significant impact on the trade of the pub or whether it got a bad name around town as a result? Yes, it would. And on top of that, there were a lot of uh, people who were going around Dublin complaining about uh, too much drink. These would have been individuals who had been in the temperance movement, but mm. a lot of their statements were intemperate. And uh, John Mulligan would have suffered as a result. In fact, in the court case uh, regarding the man who uh, kicked his wife to death, the judge actually, in his summation, complained about publicans and drink mm. and the effects it had uh, wrenching asunder the holy bond of matrimony. So there was an indirect swipe at John Mulligan, which no businessman would want to hear. Uh, so I'm sure it did have some form of an effect on him, to the extent that uh, today, you know, there are very strict rules in Mulligan's by the owners now. But those same rules I know applied to James Mulligan's son. Mm. He also did this, which he is likely to do from his father. And these are no uh, excitable behaviour or singing uh, or any kind, any kind of uh, horseplay. Because that's, that's kind of the draw of, of a pub like Mulligan's to this day, that you know you can come in and have a chat without yeah. being interrupted or feeling that's unwelcome right. because of other patrons. Yeah, and indeed one of the barmen here said it's a great thing to have because you don't have to be refusing every second person. Yeah. You know, you can actually just serve people because there are pubs that exists on, exist on earth where a, if you went into a, a decent solid citizen like yourself went in you'd probably go out the back door immediately yeah. uh, but you know in Mulligan's and indeed many other pubs in, in, in Dublin, possibly most of them now, you know, it, there is no tolerance for that kind of behaviour and in the 1950s and 60s that would not have been the case fights would have been a regular occurrence uh, bad language loud language and uh, general messing. Uh, but Mulligan's always had a name for zero tolerance yeah. with regard to that behaviour. I suppose a pub is nothing without its patrons and so many of them came from the local area, especially from the Theatre Royal which was once located across the street where Hawkins House was or is now. Is the the fabulous looking Department of Health building, yeah. ugly eyesore. Um, so the, the, the history of Mulligan is very much intertwined with the history of the, the Theatre Royal up until 1968 when it closed. Yeah, it's um, a very strong connection uh, group of um, women uh, who were royalettes and dancers came in here and used to sit in this room in, I suppose, a semi snob you could call it, at a time when women didn't go into pubs, they came in here. Uh, but you had, say, Nat King Cole, Bob Hope. Uh, Bing Crosby all playing across the road, uh, the Three Stooges. The greatest names in entertainment in the world played in the Theatre Royal, and most of them came over to Mulligan's, including Judy Garland, uh, she came in here, um, and so many, many others. And in recent times, you'd have people like uh, James Coburn came in here, 
um, you know, Peter O'Toole came in here, uh, you know, so many, um, Kevin Costner, uh, Julia Roberts. So it has retained a glint of showbiz mm. up to this era. Uh, but the Theatre Royal certainly would have been a huge uh, boon for Mulligans mm. because they did enormous trade from people who arrived early for the theatre would come in here have a drink and then after the theatre would come in here having a drink and then maybe if they didn't like the performance they'd leave early and come in here yeah. and have a drink. I suppose as well aesthetically um, it's nicer to have a grand building like that on your doorstep rather than have the, the monstrosity that you have outside and so much of this street has changed uh, even in the last hundred years from, from what it once was. Um, another institution that uh, has a, a shared history with Mulligans would be the Irish Press, uh, which is located nearby, and we've talked about the, the amount of journalists that, that drank in here and got their copy. Um, it, was, it was here for the formation of the Irish Press and when it closed. Yeah, that's right, uh, 1931 up to 1995. Um, uh, because it was so near the Irish press, uh, all the journalists used it as a sub-office and indeed there's an argument that they used it as the office. But um, you would have had uh, hundreds of journalists coming in, in the, over say a month in here, uh, not only from the Irish press but the other, because all the journalists mixed around. And uh, the most famous of them being Con Hulan, who wrote about Mulligan's quite a bit and found a, a home away from home in here. And he um, would leave his wages in here and would be in the safe in the cellar, and the float would be kept in a little tankard, uh, which would be kept behind the bar. So sometimes he would ring up, say their friends coming down, get them a drink. Mm -hmm. So he had a very unusual uh, but strong relationship with here. He re referred to it as his cabin bank. Um, and you also had another interesting group of people. The Women's Liberation Movement uh, began their first meetings in Mulligan's, mm. which was quite unusual. Mulligan's would have been seen no more than any other pub as a kind of bastion of male supremacy and machismo. And so it was quite interesting that the uh, influence of the women's liberation movement, which was help, helped to a great extent, by the way, by Chimpak Coogan, who brought Mary Kenny in as woman's editor, um, that it should have actually spawned in Mulligan's. Was there any prior kind of trend of, of women or of uh, Mulligan's um, allowing women in more so than other pubs, not just because they were Judy Garland or because they were famous? But, um, um, yeah, generally, uh, I'd say up maybe in the up to the fifties, maybe early sixties. Uh, it's a, the, the type of woman who would come in with a pop, including Mulligans, would be an elderly woman, uh, a woman or a, a tradeswoman of some kind. Um, but outside of that, really, that that was it. Now, with regard to Mulligans, because it was near the theatre, the showbiz women came in, and that maybe get some form of foundation. But uh, Jerk Cusack, one of the co-owners, said that uh, his father, Tommy, used to uh, reserve this room for women if they wanted to come in from the Theatre Royal, and that there had never been an issue. 
uh, with women coming in and drinking. Some pubs actually wouldn't have allowed a single woman of marrying age or married uh, to actually come into a pub. But Mulligans didn't ever seem to have that rule. So we've talked about a few of the, the famous patrons here, and well, it's probably the, the most famous would have been John F. Kennedy when he arrived as a, a freshman congressman, and he came with a, a companion who was also a journalist. Yeah, and again, this is uh, you know one of those things you hear, and there's a picture of, but do I know he was here? Mm. How do I know he was here? And uh, by good fortune, I managed to find out in the Irish press, uh, archives that he was brought in here uh, by Jack Greenish, who was a news editor in the Irish Press uh, in 1947. And then I found out Jack Greenish's relatives, and uh, I met his son Anthony, who was able to tell me all about this uh, really quite a fascinating uh, incident when Jack Greenish uh, met Kennedy and brought him in here. Kennedy actually called for the Irish Press building. And uh, it was Matt Grealish, who had to borrow off money to actually bring him in. Uh, uh, when he went home, uh, having met Kennedy, who I should say was a fresh-time congressman, 1947, uh, he said to his wife, I've just met the future president of the United States. And uh, yes, he was an impressive young man, Kennedy, uh, yes, there would have been many. Uh, but Grealish would have had an incredibly strong and acute eye for talent. He had it himself in, in uh, great measure. Uh, and it, it's interesting also that they were quite similar because uh, Grealish would have been trying to make the English language sing all his life. He was a very good uh, writer. And Kennedy himself, of course, became known as a great um, man for rhetoric and uh, phrases, phraseology that stuck in people's minds and resonated with them. And then they had the Joyce connection because Jack Grealish was from Galway and knew the family of Nora Barnacle, uh, James Joyce's wife, and Kennedy was a fan of Joyce, so they had that in common. So it's just uh, interesting that two individuals from different countries uh, meet and they have quite a lot in common uh, and to this day they have a picture of John F. Kennedy in the bar at the back uh, commemorating this visit. And when, when Kennedy was killed in, in 1963 was it known then that uh, by, by people in Mulligans that he had visited in 1947 had it been detailed and if so was there a big reaction in the pub on the day it happened? Uh, yeah, I mean the there was a man called Paddy Flynn here who was a great character, one of the co-owners, and he didn't ever really miss a chance to publicise the place. Mm. And he made the rather obvious point, if we had known that he was going to become president, we would have listened to him more carefully. It's <laughs> <laughs> a rather strange thing to say. But uh, he remembered him coming in, and then an attempt was made, a campaign, to get him back in here again, and mm. letters were uh, communicated to the embassy, uh, but they said that it just couldn't be done because his schedule was full. Mm. And Patty Flynn 
toward the world that the reason he couldn't come here was to, they couldn't accommodate accommodate all the security men coming. So yeah, they did remember it, and uh, perhaps they then realized this is something of great importance. Mm. And uh, so the picture has been there for quite a long time. It's it's something like in a lot of pubs you'll see a huge plaque outside saying James Joyce drank here or something's really uh, made of the, that fact but here it's very understated and it's kind of um, it's as if they don't want to bother JFK in death <laughs> as they didn't bother him when he was here many people have said that to me I mean uh, you know there would be so many things that could be put up on the wall here but their view here is one of the reasons for the success of Mulligan is the fact that it doesn't change. Mm. So putting up a picture John F. Kennedy would be seen as an enormous uh, breakaway from this tradition. Mm. Now they've done that, but I don't think they want to do anything else. Yeah. Uh, so they, yes, they are understated with it, and uh, perhaps that's the attraction of it. Mm. To your knowledge, has there been uh, much renovation done, say, in the last hundred years or so? I, you know, we say that it hasn't changed too much, but and it doesn't look like it's changed too much, but has the, the bar been refitted or, or anything like that? Uh, no, it's, it, it is as it was. Um, mm. Apart from, you know, if we were in here a hundred years ago, we wouldn't see uh, plastic packets of peanuts. <laughs> right. uh, but generally, the spirits, the Guinness, uh, is still here. Mm. Obviously, there's a greater range now of things. Mm. But the fittings, the little confessional windows, the snug-like uh, appearance of the bar area mm. has been as it was since um, 1782. Uh, that's the area we're in at the moment, which has the Joyce Room at the back of it. And the other adjoining area, number nine, which is on the right side, as you look at the building, uh, that would date from around the same period, but didn't really begin to become part of the business until 1939 or thereabouts. So the Joyce Room, I can safely say, was built in 1875, as was the other back room, which is at the back of the lounge area, 1875. And then the front portions of 8 and 9 are 1782. That's when they were opened, but uh, you could go back to 1750 for number 8. I have a deed that corresponds very closely to how it looks now, so uh, I would be 99.9% .9 sure it goes back to 1750. Hmm. I suppose a pub this old, there's always going to be ghost stories and stories of haunting it and you covered a few of those instances in the in the book where some of the bar staff separated years apart and sometimes two people at a time would see something unusual and that's it was picked up on by a few media sites recently could you talk about the spooky goings on yeah i, I was a bit wary about this because um uh, you know I, I it's not that i would disbelieve it or believe it but i would be very careful and checking out whether whoever is telling me this mm. believes what they're saying and I would uh, be utterly sure that what they're saying they believe is true. Mm. Uh, one barman, um, Billy Phelan, he uh, saw a bottle of Bacardi fly off a shelf and land on the counter, didn't break and there was no uh, 
reason for this to happen. It didn't fall, it was something out of the ordinary, and they couldn't explain it. Uh, it is unusual in a, a person who says they have a paranormal experience for someone else to experience it at the same time. And uh, this has happened a few times in here. One time, uh, Brian and his brother Gary Cusick were standing on the hatch, and that's behind the counter, there's a little hatch that you open, you can go down to the cellar. So they were standing on that, and they heard a knock, a rap, and felt it. And uh, Gary turned to Brian and asked if he hear and feel this, and the both said yes. And uh, they were a bit afraid, uh, because they knew there was no one else around on the premises. So they went down and checked, and there was nothing. And there have been a few, uh, well, maybe two, sightings of a human form in number eight. So, <coughs> for people who don't know Mulligans, you can see from one bar into the other because of a door that adjoins them. And uh, people sitting at number nine, which is on the right-hand side, as you look at the building, were looking through this door late at night and they saw what they perceived to be a human figure. When I asked them, a man, a woman, an old man, an old woman, they said it was uh, certainly the figure of a man. And the man stopped and then moved on. Um, again, there was no one on the premises. Of course, being a cynical journalist as I am, I said to the two people who said this to me, were you drinking? And one of them said, no, I don't drink. And the other one said, I was drinking Coca-Cola. So, um, again, I would uh, believe that they, what they say, they saw this. Mm. Uh, so I just report that. Um, I can't make any judgment of it other than that. It's interesting the way that, that was picked up by, by the journal and, and ran with um, over, you know, other facets of it. But I suppose that's what happens. Um, I think my favourite anecdote or story in the book is that of Billy Brooks' car, the um, Texan, I think he is. Yeah, right. like a man from Texas who frequented Mulligans on his trips to Dublin and um, sadly passed away and had some of his ashes put in the grandfather clock here in Mulligans. Um, was he well liked by the barmen? I suppose he must oh, have been. He was a, he was a, a larger than life figure. Uh, he uh, took part in. St. Patrick's Day parades in uh, Houston in Texas and I think he may have been the centre point of it and very much a, um, a proud Irish American uh, incredible wit sometimes incredibly cutting but always funny and um, it's a mark of that connection that his father, his twin brother his brother and his friends are coming four and a half thousand miles for the launch of the book wow and uh, so essentially what happened was uh, he felt that the pint of Guinness and Mulligans, and he was an expert on Guinness, he said, uh, um, he thought it was the best in the world and that's why he used to fly over here to drink Guinness. And uh, when he died, because he had such a, an affection for Mulligans, some of his ashes were brought over by a friend of his, Charles Doherty, another uh, Texan. And when he arrived in the pub, he put the um, the urn or the ashes in whatever container he had on the bar, and the barman uh, asked him, "Was his friend coming in because he had poured two pints?" Mm. And so Doc explained that he was dead, 
he had planned to scatter Billy's ashes outside, but the barman Noel Hawkins said, no, we'll put him in the clock. And as it happened, it was the 1st of April. And they were afraid that if they put a note on saying the 1st of April, the people would think it's a joke. So they actually had to put it on the 2nd of April. So they wouldn't think it's a joke. So his ashes are still here. And Darren Cusack, uh, who is a barman here, and the son of Jared Cusack, one of the co-owners, he winds the clock every eight days. It's an eight-day clock. And when he comes back, he always says, I'm just after winding up Billy. Which, of course, would be taken in two ways, uh, as in having a joke with him. And it is being wound up with the clock. Well, Declan, thanks a million for joining me here in Mulligan's or inviting me into Mulligan's. Um, it's a fantastic read. I would encourage people to go out and get it. It's quite reasonably priced at 14 99 It's available in Eason's, I Got Mine, and Dubray books. It's also available online through Eason's and through Amazon.com. Um, so, only in Mulligan's, I suppose. Thank you very much. Exactly. Thank you very much, John.